0: Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives... Authors and development experts, so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush, and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach, and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. If ever you've wondered what the relationship was with the animals in the savannas of Africa, and our own emotional intelligence. You can find out today. Frank Frencich is an internationally recognised leader in health and performance education. Having studied human biology and neuroscience, he's dedicated his life to understanding the relationship we have with our brains. But before we get a chance to speak with Frank, it's the Leadership in News. You'll know if you're a regular listener, there's always top tips and ideas to help you on your way. But we're going to flip that round today and look at things that we can avoid so here are the five common mistakes that both young and experienced leaders make and how to avoid them number one improperly delegating work failing to properly delegate work is a number one common leadership blunder good leaders hand out assignments according to skills and interest don't assign a writing assignment to a developer and vice versa you know that just makes no sense right Another way to innovate and get results is to award certain work with those who volunteer for it. By taking a chance, you might discover unique skills from the person you least expect it. Number 2. Communicating poorly Feel like you're not providing enough feedback to your team? Then it's time to revisit lines of communication. Make it a priority to have open communication, regardless of who it is. Reiterate this need to have weekly meetings, stress the importance of timely replies. Just as long as your team will answer and you do the same, you can create a huge swell of energy that's positive. Over communication in a crisis is even more relevant, but the hack is to set out some times and set out some expectations of what it is you are intending to send and receive from your team. Number three, focusing too much on strategy and not enough on day to day tactics some leaders get blindsided by the alluring strategy rather than the day to day but it's these everyday tactics require strong focus in order to arrive at your final solution in the first place i used to call these bbcs or basic but critical behaviors things that you expect to see happen that are task driven and focused on outcomes they are all people centric and you're able to connect the dots to your strategy but those daily basic routines help you on your longer journey number four failing to balance a hands-off approach with micromanaging many leaders are either too hands-off or they over manage the optimum solution is to find the balance between the two and to help you get there accountability and empowerment are the two triggers get your accountability and empowerment in balance you create more leaders and high performance. Number five, forgetting to teach, train, motivate, and reward. Ongoing training and learning and development is not only vital for the individual, but for the entire company. There are thousands of online seminars for pretty much any discipline, especially in things like digital. Many are free and for those that aren't, you might be able to pay for them through relationships. It doesn't have to be a direct cost. And of course, the biggest learning comes from doing, the experiences you have that naturally occur across your organization. Sometimes helping people recognize that actually that is exactly what's happening. They are learning is part of that process. Next is motivation. Now you've pretty much worked out, I would imagine, that you can't actually motivate anybody, but you can create the right environment for those to be motivated in. Whether it be a senior group of people, Or junior staff it's more important that you find those good old-fashioned things that are really important to them understanding their internal and intrinsic motivations will really help you connect the dots and the purpose of the work that they do the things that make them tick and it's an easy mistake but many leaders just don't even ask what is it that motivates you and lastly reward If an employee excels, provide small bonuses. Small gestures of thanks. doesn't have to be huge amounts of bonuses. But again, linked to intrinsic motivation can make a world of difference. And of course it will be different for everyone. But find out, ask the question, how do you like to be rewarded? And you will also get some great data that you can rely on as a leader. Leadership mishaps and blunders are an inevitability. We're going to do it. The most important thing is to learn from those blunders along the way. So as leaders, we can truly be in the service of our teams. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. And thank you to Rebecca, one of our listeners, who encouraged us to look at this from a different lens, to flip the context, to look at this as a lessons learned activity. Let's dive into the show. Frank Francich is a special guest on today's show. He's an internationally recognised leader in health and performance education. He's a Stanford University graduate in human biology and neuroscience and has over 30 years teaching martial arts and experience around health and education. Frank holds black belt in both karate and Aikido, and his many research trips across the world, including Africa, has helped him really get into and study the human origins and ancestral environment. And that's where he got his inspiration from his new book, Beware False Tigers, Strategies and Anecdotes for the Age of Stress. Frank, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast delighted to be here so i'm really intrigued at how you can get two black belts and two martial arts as well as all of the experience you pulled together and (laughs) written many books frank so i can't wait to get into the to the journey perhaps for our audience you could just give us a little bit of the backstory as to how you've arrived to do what you do today
1: right well I first became interested in the martial arts in my early twenties. And this was when I was an undergraduate at Stanford and I was studying human biology and I was fascinated with physicality and with movement. And I thought that there was, there was something there that um, was very important. And as a, um, educational experience. The martial art was just fantastic for me. It was a time to feel really focused and I had a lot of really fantastic teachers. And at the same time, I had a professor in human biology who said, if you really want to understand the human animal, you have to go to Africa and and study our history. And so I took him up on that and little by little, all these various pieces started to come together. And later on I studied, um, athletic training and massage therapy and it's it's been a really exciting journey to look at the human body where it came from and how it functions so i've I've been exceptionally lucky in this to have all these opportunities to do
0: and many scholars that kind of walk in your path almost have gone to africa into the savannas and have used that as a backdrop to really understand human behavior as well as animal behavior haven't they
1: Right. And I think it's so essential that we are involved in this because the modern world is kind of an illusion. We we tend to believe that the world has always been the way it is now. And we, we've kind of parachuted in to the modern world. But in fact, we have a history and that history is deep and important.
0: And that history, I suspect... It, that you talk about is where we had no distractions, we were kind of in our original settings, and that's how we were programmed physiologically to behave, right?
1: Right. And there's you can study the stuff directly, but I think for people who haven't studied it is to have a look at the movie the gods must be crazy. And you might remember that one where the the first half of the movie, or actually the first 20 minutes of the movie, they look at the lives of the Kalahar Bushmen in South Africa and they They compare that to the modern urban people living in Africa, and they really show the mismatch between our original experience and what we experience today.
0: So some of our folk will be familiar with that fight or flight, freeze and appease that comes with that physiological response to an environment. But the irony is is that what was created through our evolution to protect us and serve us in times of danger and need, actually we now trigger for this, you know, being late for work or I'm behind on a Zoom meeting or something like that, right?
1: Right. And that's sort of the irony. We've created a world, a modern world with a lot of comforts, but at the same time, we've created a lot of new and unique threats to our bodies and our lives and things like computer viruses and phishing attacks and all of these fine print sort of things didn't exist until recently so now we have you might say new tigers in camp
0: yeah so hence the title of the book right beware false tigers so what was it that compelled you to write the book and tell us a little bit about it
1: right well this goes back to my experience in massage school, because of course, there was a lot of talk about stress and reducing stress. And the more I looked at that, the more I started to realize this is a major, major theme for the modern world. It's not just feeling a little bit anxious, or it's not just a threat to your own personal longevity or health. This is something that afflicts the entire human population now in a way that's historically unprecedented so it's this is a major theme for all of us yeah
0: you call these tigers how do you recognize tigers
1: (laughs) well we we recognize them through the limbic system of our brain and our autonomic nervous system and this is something that happens oftentimes below conscious radar. And we, we experience a feeling, a threat to our personal welfare. And then we get to try and interpret what that is. You know, the voice of stress is not always that articulate. And we may feel a threat to the organism, a threat to our welfare. And then we get to... Tr- try and decode what that feeling is all about so it's a um it's an exercise in learning the world and an exercise in learning who we are
0: and the whole notion of them being false tigers is we're probably releasing the tigers unnecessarily right Would that be a kind of fair take on things
1: right it's always about perception so if you have an event in your life and you interpret it as a tiger but maybe it's really not an actual threat to your life then you're turning on your fight flight system unnecessarily and if you only do that occasionally if you get it wrong occasionally that's no big deal but if you get it wrong consistently over the course of months and years then that's going to degrade your health but not not just your health but your cognition and your ability to function in the world so it's it has huge ripple effects across your entire life
0: The one thing that struck me when I started reading your book, Frank, is why don't they teach us in high school and why don't they teach us in, you know, kindergarten and junior and primary schools?
1: Oh yeah. That's a big pet peeve of mine because this is something that's so important to our ability to function. And yet we mostly ignore it. And the way I pitch this, I say for the human animal, we have to have an understanding of what's dangerous in the world and In the paleo, this was always obvious because everybody, even little children in your tribe, in your camp, would have known that carnivores and predators are dangerous and that wildfires are dangerous and fast-flowing rivers are dangerous, that sort of thing. And danger would have been palpable and easy to understand. Mm -hmm. But now we have all these new threats and we don't educate for that. It's unlikely that any of your listeners have ever taken a course called what is dangerous that's right yeah but 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 we should be doing that and that would help us sort out genuine dangers from false dangers and that that would seem to be a fundamental part of human education now
0: yeah i agree with you So within the book you talk about a couple of things i'd love to unpick them with you one of which is primates predicament yes tell us about that
1: yes what is the state of the human animal right now and there's of course controversy about all of this but from my point of view we are under such a high level of stress the total stress burden that we're carrying around with us means that we have a population level Predicament here. And some of the numbers are staggering. There's like 1 billion people in the world now who are having mental health problems. 1 billion people in the world are living with chronic pain. That's like one out of eight. So those are huge red flags that the human animal is having trouble adapting to the modern world. And this gets back to mismatch this idea that we have these ancient bodies trying to make a go of it in the modern world. Some people do pretty well with that mismatch and and some people adapt easily, but an enormous percentage of people are struggling with that challenge. And by and large, we aren't taking it seriously. What's the root cause to that mismatch, do you think? Well, it's kind of a byproduct of our intense creativity. We are really good at devising innovations and short-term solutions and the world becomes progressively more complicated. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've had this just escalating series of innovations that the human animal hasn't really had time to adapt to. All of this innovation has happened in the blink of an eye and boom, now all of a sudden we're in this new world.
0: Yeah, and if we kind of fast forward to you know the next 10 years, thinking about the real stresses of our lives and our times and the real tigers, how do we kind of figure out what's real to us versus what we're fooling ourselves as false tigers?
1: Right, well, I think the number one thing that we have to be doing right now is listening to the science and especially climate science that is without question the alpha tiger on the planet right now. That is the biggest threat to human welfare, human civilization, and our ability to have any kind of a future. So that is the tiger that we have to be working with right now. Yeah, definitely. And it's I
0: guess you could call it a real tiger because we've got the evidence that comes with yeah. it. so much like in the paleo we could see the you know the, the burning forest we could see the rapids in the water we can actually see that happening around us now so i guess it helps us make that awareness that it is a real tiger how do you convince those who are maybe less aware
1: that it is real oh that's a great question and What I'm seeing is a lot of frustration in the climate community, uh, among climate scientists who are saying we need to convince people that this is real. Um, There's a lot of frustration there. A breakaway group of climate scientists now have become activists and they're saying the conventional channels really aren't working. So I'm not sure what it is. I think it's going to take some shocks to the system that are gonna make this obvious to more people. But right now the it's it's an uphill battle. You
0: used a word that I just wanna explore, which is activist and activism. And I know that's something that you've been really passionate about, but people also get confused with the word, don't they? Because they see it as something that's aggressive and it's contrarian, but actually you have a very different spin on it. I wonder if you could just share that.
1: Right, well, the book I'm currently writing is about activism from a martial artist perspective. Okay. And that the idea here is that we are immersed in a world where their conflict is inevitable, And once again, we don't have much training for that at all. Our educational systems basically ignore that fact of conflict, and we don't teach young people how to deal with that. So that's why there's so much angst, I think, in people who are trying to make a difference. We basically don't know how. We don't know whether to be hard or soft in our various styles, whether to be linear or circular in the way we approach conflict so there's a lot of work to be done there but i think activism is essential there's plenty of research to show it actually improves the quality of our health when we act on things that we find meaningful then the body tends to do better that's a really interesting perspective too isn't it mm-hmm.
0: and it is that act on something you're really passionate about which kind of underpins that whole activism bit i guess that what you see in the press and on the tv of activists is usually the the far end of the extreme ends of of where people have already been triggered and are probably overplaying that right
1: right yes And, and it's it's easy to focus on the spectacular acts of activism but there's a lot of invisible activism that's going on as well and It may not be spectacular, but there's a lot of work that people are doing currently that is very important and may not be as dramatic. So we need to keep that in mind as well.
0: Now, for many of the folk listening to this show, they'll be either leading teams or businesses or even leading themselves. And therefore, from their perspective, what do you see as the certain consequences of them not getting hold of this in terms of their managing their stress and their their energy?
1: Right. Well, there's a whole list of consequences that come when people are, are under chronic stress. And one of the most interesting for me is called reversion to the familiar. And we all know this in our own personal lives because if you're having a hard day, what do you wanna do? You wanna go home and sit in your living room, a place that's familiar to you, and you wanna read the same books you've always read, you wanna watch the same movies that you've always seen, you wanna eat the same foods, you want to go back to the familiar. And for people who are leading teams, this is also important because maybe you need new ideas maybe you need creativity going forward to to come up with solutions to the problems you're facing but the stress it it inclines people to revert to what they already know and that that makes sense and it's fine in moderation yeah the the dose makes the poison here. So if you go home at the end of a hard day and you revert to the familiar, that's good for you. But if you do it all the time, you're never going to make any progress.
0: Ironically, it could even make the stress worse in the future because the gap between the intention and the act gets bigger, right?
1: Right, exactly. And that's what we're seeing in the world of climate and ecosystem collapse is that as the stress escalates, people are going to just double down on what they already know. And that's going to make solutions even more difficult to arrive at.
0: There is a notion too, isn't there, that stress is actually not a bad thing if you get the dose right.
1: Right. And the way I say it is that stress is a frenemy. I like that. And it's a a wonderful thing for the body and the mind. Small doses of stress are good for us. And this is the job of the teacher, the coach, the therapist, and, and the leader in an organization is to be precise in how much stress we put people under. And we have yet to really do this in any kind of systematic way. But it's essential to remember that there's an inverse U-shape curve to this. A little bit of stress is good. A little bit more stress is even better. And then, of course, there's a tipping point and a reversal where stress becomes bad. But this idea in the standard narrative that all stress is bad and that the ideal life is a stress-free life, that's not very helpful.
0: Is there another word we could switch out for stress? Because I think it actually as a word itself. It's probably unhelpful. Is there another word you might use that would kind of help us think about stress in a positive way?
1: Right. And and that's a good point because it's been worked so hard in the popular press. Everybody seems to think that they know what it is and it's kind of a pigeonhole problem, right? So one workaround that I use there is I talk about our encounter with novelty. So, A little bit of novelty is exciting and therapeutic. Young children love novelty, right? And and they seek it out. Young adults love novelty. More is better up to a point. And so you can think of stress in the same terms. This is our encounter with novelty. A little bit is good. A little bit more is great. Too much novelty becomes toxic. I love the reframe because...
0: As you've just alluded to, as soon as you mention the word novelty, people are intrigued. They want to find out. They want to learn a bit more, don't they? And that gives them that unconscious permission to dive in a bit deeper.
1: Right. And it's an essential part of our creative process is to have that encounter with novelty. But there has to be limits. There have to be guidelines. And there has to be a recognition that you may be encountering too much novelty. And then, then you've got to take care of yourself
0: maybe you can just take us through some of your tried and tested methods for relieving some of that stress or some coping mechanisms, solutions, call it what you will.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I've got quite a list here, but um, the first one, of course, is to ask the question, is this a real tiger or is it not? And that It seems such a simple approach, but it really works. And it's worked in my life where I'll be worrying about something and something has dominated my consciousness. And then I take a step back and say, okay, is this a real threat to my life? Is this a real threat to my future, my welfare? And if the answer is yes, I have to take action. If the answer is no, I can safely let that thing go. So that's helpful.
0: That's really powerful, right? Because in that moment you're able to pretty much evaluate that whole, is it a real threat or not? And therefore unconsciously will trigger different chemical reactions in our mind, won't it?
1: Right, right. And you can always revisit it. You can always reevaluate whether it's it's a genuine threat or not, but it is a powerful starting point. Um, The other bit of um, advice that I give people is just to say, Give yourself a break. I mean, th- this this primates predicament that we're in, this level of mismatch that everyone is experiencing, this is universal across the planet. It's not just you <laughs> that's experiencing this. And just knowing that in itself can be helpful. And if I'm stressed out right now, I'm in the
0: moment, I'm listening to you, Frank, what would be the, the one thing that would enable me to kind of step out of that?
1: This scanner perspective, Prescriptions are quite good here. I mean, focusing on the breath is really good. And the other bit I think that's really important is just slowing down. This is um, another part of the modern world that's so difficult for us is that a sense of urgency is very contagious among hypersocial animals. So if the people around you are in a big hurry, which is often the case, then that that tends to rub off on us. And then we start speeding up as well. So the reminder here is always, whatever you're doing, slow down. And in your experience, Frank, having traveled the world
0: and worked in different locations, studying not just humans, but also animals, is there a blueprint we can look at in the animal kingdom that is replicated in how we behave as, as human sapiens?
1: Well, yes. And I had an insight into this when I visited a museum in the American Southwest, and it was a desert museum, and they had all the types of things that you would expect in a desert museum. But we we walked around into a courtyard at the museum, and there was a large cage there with a wild jaguar, a wild panther that had recently been captured. And this was an extraordinary thing to watch, that this panther was pacing back and forth in the cage and exhibiting what you might call hyperactivity or ADHD or whatever you want to call it. The the animal was very anxious. And from a modern perspective, you might say, well, that animal was having some sort of a neurological problem or a lifestyle disease or some sort of anxiety disorder. But on the other hand, you look at that animal and say, no, that's an absolutely normal response to being incarcerated. Yeah. And so for me to look at animals in that kind of situation and then to look at humans and this epidemic of depression and anxiety that people are, are experiencing now, I tell people, look, you are, you are not diseased if you are feeling this way. This is the normal response of a normal animal to these kind of difficult surroundings so that's a big stress reliever right there because yeah. once you realize that your body is behaving the way a normal animal would behave it's not you yes. it's it's your animal body and so that i find very helpful
0: you do a lot to help people get out of that environment don't you so you use things like movement your martial arts is an example of that just tell us a little bit about how some of those things can help
1: right well obviously getting outside is crucial and a lot more people are recommending this now and it makes sense but it's not just the experience of being outdoors it's this psychological identification with nature that i think is what we really need to to see as native people have done for a very long time now that this this thing called nature is not other. It is actually self. It is actually us. So when you look at a forest or you look at the ocean, you look at at some natural terrain, that is an extension of you. It's an extension of your body. The native people call this the long body. So that is a very helpful way to look at this as well. The other part of your question there is, With the movement and the martial arts, this movement in a social setting and touching other human animals, that has a very therapeutic effect as well. Developing rapport with other people through the body, that eases our sense of fear and it makes us feel great. Awesome.
0: Really fascinating. I I could spend all day picking your brains, but (laughs) unfortunately we won't have the time. One of the things I would love to do now though is just to turn the tables a little bit and dive into your brain, thinking about some of the things you've experienced from a leadership perspective over your 30 plus years in teaching leaders and others to get to grips with their uh, human self. What would be your top three leadership hacks?
1: Well, the first one... And I love this one because it's kind of counterintuitive, but I tell, I say, treat people like animals. All right. And and for some people, this sounds so surprising yeah. and so shocking because when we use that phrase, we were treated like animals, we we tend to think that that was a bad thing. We were on the airplane and they, they treated us like animals because that's, I guess, what we've done historically is we've treated animals poorly but i turn this thing upside down and i take a veterinary approach to leadership or teaching or coaching any of these things look at your people your students your clients your patients as animals first and foremost And if they're coming into your setting and they're already hyper-stressed, now you've got to work with that. Maybe they need more stress. Maybe they need less. But you have to look at what their experience is right now. And that is a whole new domain, I think, of leadership because we have to look at the physical experience and the psychological experience that people are bringing to the setting. Now, some people have suggested, well, we we need to measure their cortisol levels, and that that would be a technical approach. But I think there's another approach there. It's just more humane. and means listening better. (laughs) Yeah, love it. Uh, Other leadership hacks. The other one I like from the Native and Indigenous tradition is called contextual leadership. And this simply means that people are leaders, not across the board in every situation, but in certain domains so you might be a really good leader on the hunt and people in your tribe would recognize that but when you get back to camp you might not be such a great leader at preparing food you might not be such a great leader telling stories around the campfire other people are good at that and this is part of the indigenous tradition that people say well You're a leader in this situation, but not in another one. And I think this is something that we can also take to heart and assign and invite people to become leaders in other roles.
0: And if you think of yourself as an animal in a tribe or a pack, they all have their roles to play. And that's good old fashioned situational leadership, isn't it?
1: right and 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 I think in the modern world, we often get this wrong because we say if a peop if a person is a good leader in one domain, then they must be a good leader in all things, but that's that's crazy, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and then the third leadership hack, I think is um just to recognize the power of story, and this this is so important because the stress response is driven by our perception and our interpretation of reality, which means there is a story-body connection. There is a connection between story and the autonomic nervous system. And if we can change or reframe stories, then we can re- literally work in with people's bodies. And we need to be better storytellers. Love those. That awesome.
0: Thank you, Frank. So the next part of the show we call Hack to Attack. So this is typically where something hasn't gone well. It may be been catastrophic, but we've taken the opportunity to learn from it, and it now is a force of good in our life or work. What would be your hack to attack?
1: Right. Well, looking back at my life and some of the mistakes I've made, I can trace some of this back to having a poor understanding of what's called the drama triangle. And you may have heard of this. this is a popular theme in the world of psychotherapy and counseling, where Therapists have recognized a common pattern and that's when things aren't going well, we tend to describe ourselves as victims. And when we do that, then we typically blame perpetrators for our situation and then we go in search of rescue. So those those are the three points of the drama triangle. And this is a very popular thing <laughs> that people do and it it sucks us in because we say i'm a victim there must be a perpetrator out there somewhere and so we blame these people or governments or institutions for our unhappiness and then we go looking for rescue for from ideas or ideologies or substances whatever it is and when we get immersed in this drama triangle, things tend to spiral out of control. Yeah. So the, the the way out of the drama triangle, as most coaches and therapists recommend, they say, look, you have to be creative. Stop blaming perpetrators. Stop looking for rescue and start focusing on the creation that you want to do in the world. Nice. And that, that took me some years to realize.
0: <laughs> it's nice. I like it a lot. Yeah. So the last part of show, Frank, we get to do with you is take you on some time travel. You get to bump into yourself at 21 and you get to give yourself some advice. What do you think it
1: might be? Yes. Well, I would say to my 21-year-old self that taking responsibility, and this goes back to the drama triangle, taking responsibility is powerful. Because the more you take on, the more meaningful life becomes. Mm. And you don't have to just take responsibility for your own personal life. No, you take responsibility for the entire world. And so, for example, I didn't cause climate change. I don't cause racism or sexism or xenophobia or anything. But I do want to take responsibility for those things in the world and doing what I can. So... That is a path towards meaning, and that is a path towards fulfillment. And my 21-year-old self really would have benefited yeah, from that. 92 I think. <laughs> Wise <words. laughs>
0: So what's next for you then, Frank, on your journey?
1: Well, I'm really excited about this book about martial artistry and activism. The title is The Enemy is Never Wrong, and I'm, I'm excited about the title because this is a teaching that I had from a martial art teacher some years ago. And he advised us to to stop getting emotionally involved in the rightness or wrongness of our opponents. He said, look, whatever the enemy does is just what you have to work with. Don't get attached to any particular strategy or outcome. You have to just take the enemy as is. That's. A good teaching there and that's something that we can do as activists. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited about that title and that concept and that's where I'll be going for the next year. Excellent.
0: And I love that notion as well because more often than not, you can get so easily involved in the problem or the solution rather than just seeing it as it is, which when we wind it back to one point one, being present and in the moment stops those false tigers, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a powerful teaching. So
0: Awesome. So how can our listeners get copies of many of your books and indeed find out a little bit more about the work you do beyond our conversation?
1: Right. Well, it's easy to remember the the website where it's all there. It's exuberantanimal.com. And if you type in exuberant animal, you'll get it.
0: Cool. And we'll put those and any links you have to the various books and, and work you have in our show notes as well, Frank.
1: Nice, nice.
0: I've really enjoyed chatting. It's such a fantastic parallel to our world and Your work has brought it into the world of business because it's a real thing. We all have tigers. Some of them, in fact, more of them are probably more false than real. Right. Uh, And just understanding them and being able to deal with those um, can help us become better leaders and and better people to work with. So thanks for sharing your information, Frank, and thanks for being on our community
1: on the Leadership Record podcast. Oh, yeah. It's, It's been great fun. I've enjoyed
0: it. Thank you, Frank. I want to sign off by saying a thank you to you for joining us on the show too. We recognise without you there is no show so please continue to share, subscribe and like and continue to get in touch with us for the great news stories that we share every week. And so that we can continue to bring you great stories please make sure you give us a five star review where you can and share this podcast with your friends, your teams and your communities. If you want to find us on social media you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Leadership Hacker Leadership Hacker on YouTube And on Instagram, the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And if that wasn't enough, you can also find us on our website, leadership-hacker.com. Tune in to next episode to find out what great hacks and stories are coming your way. That's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been your Leadership Hacker.